Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, astrophysicist Sarah Seeger on her memoir, The Smallest Lights in the Universe. Sarah Seeger is an astrophysicist and a professor of physics and planetary science at MIT. Her research, which earned her a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant, has introduced many foundational ideas to the field of exoplanets, and she led NASA's probe class study team for the Starshade Project. She is now at the forefront of the search for the first Earth-like exoplanets and signs of life on them. And today we're going to be talking about Sarah's book, The Smallest Lights in the Universe, which is a memoir. Sarah, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thanks. Thank you, Neil. Long-time listeners to the show may remember that we spoke back in the summer of 2012 and at that point one of the things we talked about was at that time a future project that you'd recently started working on which was CubeSats which would eventually become a project called Asteria. That has now come to fruition in in 2017 um, SpaceX launched Asteria into space. So first of all Remind us what Asteria was. Yes, well, Asteria was a tiny telescope. It was only about a six centimeter aperture diameter. And the goal of Asteria was actually to test technology to show that we could point a small package, whether it be a telescope or anything, very, very precisely. Our ultimate goal is to send up a constellation, dozens of tiny telescopes. Each one would stare at its own star a bright sun-like star for as long as needed, just to check if there's a transiting Earth-sized planet going in front of the sun-like star. What was it like to see that finally launch? It was amazing. Our project, Asteria, it was like a miniature version of any other space mission in that it was very complicated, it went over budget, it took longer than expected. So all of that was kind of not amusing, but just life. So when Asteria was finally ready to go, Um, Interestingly enough, two of the team members literally took it on an airplane and they bought a middle seat ticket for it. So we knew that it would be safely transported from where it was built at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab in California out to where it was delivered to be um, ready for launch in Florida. Indeed, there's a story in the book about how you took it on a plane or a a version on the plane earlier. And there's there's an argument with the um, with the aircrew about whether or not you should go in the hold or not. Right, right. Because have you seen how aircrew can treat packages or suitcases? Yeah. 
And so we, uh, we had taken a prototype for an earlier version to test the camera on the night sky in New Mexico, where the skies are incredibly beautiful. And yes, we were on our way home and it was designed to fit as carry-on, but the people, it was a tiny, pl- a small plane. You know, when you take a small plane from a small town to an airport where you connect to a bigger plane. And yes, they wanted to put it in the cargo area. In the book, you move on to work on a project that I just mentioned in the introduction, Starshade. That's one of two NASA projects. And on this one, you you become the lead on it. And first of all, what Starshade is, it was an idea that had been around for a while, wasn't it? It really was, actually. And just to back up a little bit, I support or work on many ideas that can help us find another Earth. And Starshade wasn't designed initially to find another Earth, but the goal was to have a very specially shaped, very large screen and to attach this large screen to a spacecraft and launch it into outer space. And the Starshade would work together with a telescope so that Starshade would block out starlight so that any planets around that star could be detected by the telescope. And yes, Starshade was first thought about in the 1960s. What eventually ends up being designed is of a very particular shape. And I want to talk about why, how we get to that shape that the prototype ends up being. Yeah, it's this crazy shape. It looks like a giant flower. And it is that shape because of the diffraction of light. Light can act like a wave. And if we were to put up a giant circular screen in space then and blocked out a starlight, where a star is just a point of light, you know what's amazing is we wouldn't be blocking out the light because the light would actually act like a wave and bend around the edges of a giant circular screen. And what would be imaged in our telescope would be rings of concentric rings of light. It would be like throwing a pebble in a pond. You'd see ripples. The light ripples are way brighter than the planet we'd be looking for. So people worked out mathematically that if the starshade wasn't a giant circle, but instead could be this very special mathematically determined shape, like a flower with giant petals, that the light, um, the wave, the starlight would hit the starshade and still bend around the edges but the light would interfere with itself in a very special way to cancel itself out. And this would like be throwing a pebble in the pond. And instead of seeing ripples, the pond would be perfectly smooth and all the ripples would be pushed to the outside edges. Like how bizarre would that be? So I own a telescope and my telescope has both a a solar lens and various different filters and things that you affix to the front of the telescope to change how you see through it. But this starshade, that's not what that does, is it? It's not fixed to the front of the space telescope. Right, it's not fixed at all. In fact, it would be, it's totally independent and it would be formation flying. So it would have to line up precisely with the telescope and it's, it would have to be very far away from the telescope. Now for each new target star that's in a different place in the sky, the starshade attached to its spacecraft would literally have to move across the sky so that it could realign with a new target star. And we're talking about thousands of miles here. Yes, many, many thousands of miles. So one of the obvious difficulties of achieving such a such a precision synchronicity between those two instruments. Very difficult. It's incredibly complex, actually. One thing that helps, though, is that the starshade and its telescope would have to be very far away from Earth because Earth's gravity would make the problem just really, really hard. So we've broken this problem down into three different steps for the Starshade and Telescope to line up. First of all, the Starshade spacecraft has a direct communication link to Earth. So we'll always know approximately where the Starshade is in, in, in space. 
Secondly, the starshade will have a bright bank of LEDs, so it will have a bright shining light when it's needed. That light will be dimmed to the telescope, but the telescope will be able to see the starshade when it needs to. And there'll be a feedback loop, so the starshade and telescope can eventually line up. Finally, the most clever part of this whole series of steps is that the starshade is designed so it doesn't block out all of the starlight at every color. It'll let some light through, namely some red light. We call this red light leakage. But when the starshade and the telescope are perfectly aligned, the telescope can detect some of that red light leaking all around the edges of the starshade, and it'll know it's lined up, ready to go. When you first were appointed the head of this project, it was widely seen as science fiction, like quite a quite an out there idea. Definitely. The project obviously was carried out and is over now. So where are we now with the starshade and its acceptance? Right. Well, just to explain where we were at the time was that small groups around the United States of America were being funded to develop various aspects of starshade. So the project was alive at a very low level. But the general community of astronomy, they weren't really aware of this effort. And they really just thought starshade was laughable. I remember being at this barbecue at a work event and people were for some reason here from other parts of the country. And they were just like stunned, like, what? Like starshade? Wow. I thought that that idea was dead. I thought that was impossible for formation flying. And there was always a different excuse, actually. But when we were chosen to um, study starshade and the team, we had engineers at NASA It gave us an opportunity to bring all the different efforts together under one umbrella and to create like the story about how we were going to get from where we were then to launch. And I wasn't 100% sure if this study was made to make Starshade a success or if it was also perhaps chosen in case we determined Starshade wasn't going to work, which would be an okay answer because in science and technology, you know, we have to call it over when it is. So we're just thrilled. Starshade is still ongoing. It gets technology development funds from NASA, and it's still moving forward. We're all a bit on pause right now because in the USA, every 10 years, there's a event called the Decadal Survey where astronomers are chosen to get together. Actually, there's a special group chosen to run the whole Decadal Survey, which actually rank orders. They make a priority list of space missions, of ground-based telescopes, of what the community should be doing in the next decade. So it's not just Starshade, but other projects are kind of waiting to see where the cards fall. There was a common belief about the whole field of of exoplanets. I remember we talked about this before, that, you know, while we could find exoplanets, fundamentally, it was described as stamp collecting. We could find these things, we could tick them off but there wasn't really a great deal we could necessarily learn from them. And obviously this is a science that has, you know, has has changed a lot over the years. When we spoke before, there already had been planets found. Now, again, nearly a decade later, there's obviously been a lot more found. So what has happened in the field of exoplanet research in the years since we last spoke? So much has happened. I honestly almost wouldn't know where to start. The Kepler mission, which was ongoing since the last time we spoke, has now retired and found thousands of planets. And Kepler showed us that the most common type of planet out there is a planet two to three times the size of Earth and smaller than Uranus and Neptune, a planet that we have no no planet like it in our own solar system. We haven't found any true solar system copies. Although our solar system is hard to find, it has to be quite rare. We've studied dozens and dozens of exoplanet atmospheres. We've seen, you know, more instrument, new instruments, new techniques come on board. So the whole field has really just flourished. 
One of your areas of expertise is the um, exoplanet's atmosphere, the sort of biosignature of gases. And so what can we learn from detecting gases around other planets? Well, this one I don't have as positive an answer for you. The field of biosignature gases, it's still a theoretical field. It's still a field that's in our computers and our models. We're waiting for our next generation telescopes to be made ready so that we can study atmospheres of small planets, the kind that might host life. But it's going to be a tricky business because for any signature that might be associated with life, any gas that might be associated with life, people have been working hard to think of all the other false positive scenarios. And there's a lot of them. Well, indeed. I mean, only a few months ago, and ironically, we're talking here in the main about looking for extrasolar planets. Um, but there was a bit of a buzz around Venus and its atmosphere, wasn't there? Right, right. I can talk a lot about that. My team had been working on, literally, we're going through every gas that could possibly be a sign of life on an exoplanet. And one of our favorite gases we had spent a lot of time studying is phosphine. Meanwhile, another team led by Professor Jane Greaves in the UK purposely decided to look for signs of life in the Venus atmosphere by way of the gas phosphine. So our teams, she invited us to join her team. And yes, we, we found phosphine on Venus. However, it's been somewhat controversial in many different ways. And so that story is still playing out. So the one thing about phosphine on Venus is, first, people want to make sure the observation is real and repeatable. And second, we have to think about what could possibly be making phosphine on Venus. The gas certainly doesn't belong because there's almost no hydrogen on Venus and the temperatures and pressures are not right to form phosphine. We'd love to think like it's made by some kind of life floating around in the clouds of Venus, but that's nothing we can definitively say. So yes, phosphine on Venus is a perfect example. There'll be skepticism, there'll be theories of false positives. It'll take a long time to sort through and that's for a planet close to home. And indeed, it's been in the news that we think we may have been able to detect radio signals from another planet. What do we mean by that? Well, there have been two things in the news, but one of them is that planets um, should have magnetic fields. They don't all have to have a magnetic field, but we suppose that some planets will have a magnetic field if they have the right conditions on the inside. And for a long time, people have been looking for signs of a planet's magnetic field. Like our own planet, Jupiter, has a pretty strong radio signal from its uh, magnetic field. And so there was an announcement of a tentative detection of one such magnetic field like that. There's also, of course, the idea that there might be aliens out there who use radio signals to send us a purposeful message. And there's been some news about that as well, but that one is, there's no definitive one way or the other. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Sarah Seeger and we're talking about her new book, The Smallest Lights in the Universe, a memoir. And Sarah, the other thing that had recently happened, the last time we spoke back in 2012, is less than, well, about six months before then, you had become a widow. Your first husband died, I was going to say unexpectedly, it wasn't unexpectedly, but certainly extremely young. This book is a memoir of of your life, the scientist behind the science as well. So I'd want to spend the the second half of the interview talking about the memoir aspects of the book. And going back a bit, first of all, you talk about you had rather a, um, a, shall we say, neglectful upbringing when you were a child. Of course, when we're all children, we don't know if our life is normal or abnormal because you only have your own one example to to study. But I did have a pretty unhappy childhood. My, I came from a broken home, which wasn't that common in Canada back then. And my mother had remarried the so-called evil stepfather. So that was pretty unpleasant. Meanwhile, I got to spend weekends with my dad, who really was quite eccentric in his thinking. And he would tell me crazy ideas that I had to think about for myself. Like he believed in reincarnation and later UFOs, even though he was a, a educated man. So I had to really piece through all those. It, I think, helped me become a scientist because you can't believe everything you hear. But my dad also took me to a telescope when I was little. And I'll never forget, I hope you and, and the listeners have seen this too, but I'll never forget the first time I looked through a telescope, it was pointed at the moon. And it, I just thought, wow, that's, that's a whole other world. And it was so astonishing that it really kind of changed something inside my, my mind. You talk very movingly in the book about the death of your father. My dad was always my go-to. I could say it in a funny way. Like one time I backed into a parked car and who do you call? Like you call your dad, even if you're 35 years old, but more than that, he was always so positive and he was always pushing me to think harder, to do better, to reach my potential, which he always thought was infinite. And just losing him really set me adrift because I didn't really have anyone, anyone to turn to who I knew was always like my guardian angel. You meet your your first husband, Mike, and you write beautifully in the book about some of the the adventures you had in the early days, amazing travels, canoeing over the wilds of Canada. Tell us about some of those trips. 
Well, most of Canada is uninhabited, even by Native people who no longer, unfortunately, roam the land. But there's vast, vast areas where there's just lakes and forests, and there's a lot of water up there. So the best way to get around, if you like camping or the wilderness, is really by canoe. And we would spend one month or once we went for two months, you know, north of 60 degrees in the Northwest Territories or one place that's now called Nunavut. And we just would uh, <laughs> like have a map, plan our trip in advance, pack all our food incredibly carefully and just go. It's mostly what we call the subarctic tundra. So you go in the boreal forest where there's evergreens and they get thinner and thinner. And eventually as you go north, we usually we go on a big river that had giant rapids. Eventually you go north and north and you know what? You run out of trees. You're so far north. It's just the vast open land. And sometimes we'd see caribou, lots of them. In some parts of Canada, we saw grizzly bears, so much wildlife and just really feeling like true explorers. There's a story in the book that you tell about a time you were caught up in a forest fire. Yes. Well, first of all, I'm one of those, I love being outdoors and exploring and risk-taking, but it's a controlled type of risk-taking. And before we went on that trip, I actually had a mentor in this canoeing area. His name was Professor George Lusty. He's not alive now, but he was very helpful in helping us figure out what to do. And I remember asking him before this particular trip, well, what happens if there's a fire? How do we handle that? And he had no answer. So I just let that one go thinking, okay, if he doesn't know the answer, then it's probably not, not something I need to worry about. But we were on a trip on a river going upstream. We were trying to cross a height of land, which is like a continental divide, but smaller, like a mini one, mini version, going from one watershed to another. So we were not on a giant lake. We couldn't paddle away from a fire. But all of a sudden, we're paddling upstream, moving upstream. And it, I felt like we hit a wall because all of a sudden, I couldn't see anything. And it took our brains a while to understand what we, was in front of us, but we were confronted by a wall of smoke. We couldn't go anywhere, so we brought all of our gear up an esker. And remember what I was saying was that the trees are thin out, so there weren't that many trees, just a lot of sand. But across the river, there were still a lot of trees. And at one moment, I remember Mike saying, he was very optimistic, by the way. He just said, oh, we have nothing to worry about. And then, boom, some trees just caught fire. And we're just roaring and huge bright lights. And it was just really scary. Later on, Mike and yourself, you have a couple of sons. And then Mike becomes gravely ill. And this is obviously a terrible time for you both. But the way you relate it in the book is that this is really compounded by the experiences you have with the hospital. What happens? Well, the hospital ignored his initial complaints. He had a very bad stomachache that was on and off and just got worse with time. And the doctors, you know, I think they're just trying to cut back on expenses, but they wouldn't do tests. They just kind of said, let's, let's wait and see. We'll wait and see if, if you ever hear that and your, you know, your inner voice is telling you there's something really wrong with me. You need to push back on the system and ask for, say, hey, this is not normal. And he had a bunch of tests. Like he had very, very low iron. He had was missing one of the vit the B vitamins. You know, if people had looked back, we actually saw all the clues that he had a major problem. But at the time, they just didn't notice those. So they just kind of sent him home. And then one day he ended up in the hospital with like 100% complete intestinal blockage. No food could go in, no food could go out. And that eventually led to cancer, which eventually is what he died from. After Mike's death, a chance meeting with a woman out walking, Melissa, and this enables your introduction to a group of women that you call the the widows of Concord who are there for you over the over the next couple of years while you're dealing with the situation. Tell us about these these women and, and who they were. 
Well, meeting the widows was one of the best things that ever happened to me. I was there struggling on my own, incredibly depressed and sad you know, with two little kids. And when you're in academia, as a scientist, you move around a lot. So I had only lived here for a few years. I didn't have like friends. My family's very far away. And wow, I was just alone. And I did call this local church to join a widow's group. And they rejected me saying that their group is like old widows, you know, old widows, not young widows. So miraculously, one day I bumped into Melissa and it's in the book if you want to read how, how it came to be, but it was shocking. She told me she had just started a group of widows in their late thirties, early forties, about six of them. And our group grew to be about seven. And all, all these widows were very similar. We all had kids that spanned different ages. We all just were just drowning in our grief. And so we became a group. We met, it was a fun group, actually. It doesn't sound fun, like if I, you know, but it was so funny and crazy. And these women were incredibly resilient and vivacious and they could do anything. And I've been to Concord as well. And it's, it's a very small town. It does seem amazing that there was, there was you know, so many widows so of, many, a, of yes, a similar so, age. So many of a similar age. And it turned out the summer when my when Mike was dying, I had called my kids summer camp. It's just a day camp down the street. And I just talked to the director and explained what was going on. And I said, you know, we're pretty sure he's going to die this summer. I was so astonished. The doc, the director said, oh, that's fine. We're used to this. We, we got this. <laughs> I was just like, what? How? How? But I only found later when I met the widows of Concord that they had each at some point sent their kids to the camp. So he knew about, about dad's dying. You also talk in the book about the trials that as a mother and having a demanding role at MIT as a scientist as well, the sort of incompatibilities often of these things, as you've just said about the travel. Obviously, then these things become compounded by your widowhood as well. Tell us something about what that was like at the time, just having to deal with day-to-day -day tasks, the shopping, the laundry, etc. It was hard. And I just want to give a shout out to all the single moms out there. It's a tough life. And being a scientist is a special kind of job because we're obsessed with our job in a good way. It's like a major obsession. And when you get onto a problem, you're close to solving it. You don't want to drop that. But it's really, really hard to then have to think about laundry or grocery shopping or what are we going to make for dinner? It completely ruins the, the ability to have long stretches of time where your mind can churn away at what might be like a big breakthrough or something really, really exciting and exploratory. It's like exploring, just like going to the Arctic, but you need time. You can't kind of go to the Arctic explore and then go home and do something else. You have to kind of keep the journey moving. It was incredibly tough. And the things in academia is that you're almost like a mini entrepreneur and you're supposed to be traveling to kind of tell people about your work, learn about theirs, go to conferences and network, spend extra time after work, like writing grants and this and that. And there's just so much, I couldn't keep all the balls in the air. I couldn't travel. And there was no point because I'd have to pay my wonderful babysitter, but pay 24 seven, you know, like continuous childcare, which was just really not, not possible. It's a really poignant bit in the book where you talk about, there's a few occasions, but I'm particularly thinking of when you received the news of the MacArthur grant and you talk about how receiving really good news is often very difficult when you're alone. The funny thing about the mind is that looking back, I only remember positive things. <laughs> so um, it's, yeah. So I, well, there's two things that happened. One thing I was so grateful because it comes with a big cash award and I was able to keep working because paying my household help and my, my babysitters and just sort of, I did travel. I would bring the kids, I'd bring their babysitter. And so the money was just incredibly helpful. It turns out for a single mom to work in a really demanding job, it costs you a lot of money just to work. 
because you have to pay the people to, to get all the other stuff done. But the other thing is that I do really remember that I, of course, regret now cutting short a lot of my time with Mike because I was so ambitious. And it's not just ambition, it's that obsession. When you're obsessed with solving problems, like the world goes away. And unfortunately, we don't give as much to our, our families as we should. And I remember like thinking or telling him, you know, we'll have time later. You know, later on, we'll have time, we'll have money. I imagine us being older and not retired, but, you know, taking more time with for each other, for vacation, whatever. And all of a sudden, when I got this award, I just realized I couldn't celebrate it with him and that it was too late. Now we'd have money, which could also buy us time. And it, he wouldn't be there to, to share that. Well, eventually you meet... Charles, who eventually becomes your second husband. And I don't want to give too much away about the book. People can read and find out what happens and how that goes um, and how your family has changed now. But to finish off, perhaps we could just talk about the process of writing this memoir when you decided to sit down to relive a lot of the things that we've just talked about, a lot of the things that you talked about in the book. How was the process of writing it for you? Well, when I'd first met the widows, I asked one of them, are you writing a book? Because the widow's story, it's an incredible journey, just like exploring through the Arctic, but it's an inner journey, you know, instead of, instead of an outer journey. And I just always had wanted to share that story. And so I did get the opportunity to write this book and it was pretty tough, actually. It's always hard to relive sort of the joy and the trauma of the past, but it's also cathartic. And I think it's a very, very healing process as well. And I always hope that part of my, my journey will inspire people in one way or another. Is you know, when you hit rock bottom, there's always a way out. And when you have a dream and a passion for your job, there has to be some way to make that work. And it's the whole joy of exploration, outer space, wilderness, inner space, all coming together in my memoir. So I've been talking to Sarah Seeger. We've been talking about her book, The Smallest Lights in the Universe, a memoir, which is out in the UK from 40 State. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me again. Thank you so much. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.